0: I am at the moment a student of ASU, as he said, right? And I'm obviously exploring the world, trying to figure out uh, what opportunities lie ahead for him as well as uh, his other friends at ASU and here at Fremont. Let's go over to Lyra. Hey, Lyra, welcome to the Silicon Dreams.
1: Do you mind introducing yourself to our audiences? Hi, I'm Lyra, and I'm a rising junior at. Doherty Valley High School. And I'm very excited to be interning here at Orbis 86 and to be able to speak here today.
0: So, Lyra, what are you doing? What do you do? What's your background?
1: Um, so, at Orbis 86, I'm a marketing intern. So, I manage the TikTok and I've also been able to attend events and speak to a bunch of people in the Web3 world. And outside of Orbis 86, what do you do? Um, at school, I play I play a role as a club leader, so I have a club called Women of Color in Technology and Science, and I'm also part of a couple of non-profit organizations. So Lyra, out here, a rising uh, rising junior, she has been
0: uh, rocking Dorothy High School, I should say. And Lyra, let's go ahead and start with you, right? So why take up an internship in a summer versus spending your time, right? Just maybe going around enjoying the vacation, but instead of that, both of you chose to actually spend your time during summer, interning, learning about Web3. I would love to start with you, Lara. Where do you think you wanted to go ahead with an internship? And then we
1: could talk about what, uh, what did you learn along the way? So the reason why I chose to go with an internship instead of what well, you said, enjoying your summer, but for me, this internship has really been a lot of fun and I've been learning. And for me, learning is a lot of fun. So to be able to learn all about Web3, which is something I didn't know a lot about before, and to also be part of a workplace culture has been something that I've really enjoyed and is kind of how I intended on planning my summer. What about you,
0: Aya?
2: Well, for starters, I heard a lot about AI during the school year itself with um, the abundance of Chat GPT. Um, I know for college students and for high school students, Chat GPT was such a big thing. You know it was a game changer for assignments and things like that. Um, but I really wanted to look more at you know what exactly artificial intelligence is, you know, what the futures of it, is, what the future of it is, what the applications are, and what better way to do that than to intern, learn professionally, network professionally as well with others, and see and not only did I just learn about you know AI, I learned a lot about you know Web three. Which I think was more interesting is something I didn't really look at before, but now I'm looking at it a lot more. So I'd say, yeah, that's kind of why I took up the internship over summer. Uh, it was definitely something to do as well, uh, kept me busy, uh, uh, which was really fun overall. So
0: thanks, Ayan. You know, one of the things I wanted to tell you was uh, when I was at my engineering college, right? So I was about the same age as you are now, Ayan, and that feels like a while ago. So, oh my God, <sighs> I've aged. <laughs> But that being said, I was probably one of the very few students who would even take up an internship and honestly internship at that point. I was lucky I got to work at a call center and, you know, that might not feel like much because it was a call center, but it was very professional and as you said, right, being part of a workplace environment. The call center was for Next Directory from UK, which is the second largest retail chain after Marks and Spencer. And it was owned by Next Directory. So it was different from being at a call center where you would actually change your identity and your accent to service people in UK or US. You didn't have to do that. You kept your identity, you spoke in a neutral accent. However However, what was interesting is being a part of that culture and seeing what's happening. This was back in early 2000s. And at that time, call centers in India, India being a services hub, it was expanding and just being able to experience that corporate culture, understand how things work, how you work with teams, the hierarchies all of those things that played a huge role in my growth. However, I was one of the few students who even had any sort of a job during summer. It was hard for me to take up a job during my college time for the simple reason that I was studying at Nanded, which was uh, 10 hours away from any major city in India. And around that time, we didn't really have opportunities for remote internships. Now I see, like Lyra, you are a rising sophomore and you're not the only person who's interning the summer, right? So I want to understand, do you think that the competition, and maybe you, as you said, Lyra, right, you're probably interning for for fun to learn. You also enjoy uh, meeting new people, learning about things, but just the way things have changed, I'm wondering whether you feel like the competition has changed from what it was 10 or even 20 years ago. What are your thoughts on that? I would probably start with Lyra. And Lyra, I'd love to ask you if you feel like Today, we are more competitive or lesser competitive than maybe 10 to 20 years ago. And you were not born 20 years ago, but you might have heard about things from your parents, right? And Indian parents love going on, uh, love recounting their tales. <laughs> so I would love to ask you, what do you, what do you think? What are your perspectives?
1: I definitely think that competition has increased. Um, So at my school, when I talk to people about their summer plans, what I often hear is that, oh, I'm doing a job or that I'm doing an internship at, I have a friend and she's doing an internship. She wants to be a dentist. So she's doing an internship um, with a dentist and she wants to be a lawyer. So she's working with a lawyer. And I would definitely say competition has increased and also pressure has increased because it feels like everyone around you is doing something over the summer that is more impactful than just say, enjoying yourself and hanging out with friends. All right. I am.
2: So I definitely say that, you know, my time in high school obviously was, you know, during the time of COVID. So while we were at home, you know, working on schoolwork, there was a big push for, you know, getting real world experience. That was something that actually colleges looked at a lot and colleges valued. And I'd say that's kind of honestly what the view is these days. You know, um, it's more based on getting things on your resume, getting things on your college application itself, rather than, you know, actually enjoying the experience and learning from it. That was the view in high school, you know, but when I came to college, when I went to Arizona State, I learned more about how other people view their opportunities. And I actually learned from that, you know, there were a lot of my friends who were landing internships. And while I would look at them, I'd say, hey, you know, are you really landing this in like are you really interested in consulting for example or like IT consulting and things like that and they'd say yes I actually am whereas you know if I was to look at if I was to talk to people from high school you know they'd say oh I'm doing this you know obviously for the resume and for the college applications so I'd say yes and no to your question you know there is a big difference from like maybe 10 20 years ago but I'd still say that people value the internships uh in college at least as well so
0: now It was good that, Lara, you brought up how your friends who want to become lawyers and dentists and engineers, obviously, Ayan, or uh, folks getting into management, into consulting. Do you hear a lot of people interning as artists? Do you think there are people around you who want to take up a career as an artist? And yes or no. And if it is a no, is it because they are bad artists or because (laughs) because (laughs) of some other reasons? I'd love to ask you, Ayan.
2: So... As far as art goes, you know, obviously pertaining to college, there are majors, but, you know, in high school, getting your name out there is what really matters in art. And I actually had a friend in high school who was very interested in art and, you know, the amount of backlash that he got from his peers and from his friends. Just because, you know, people don't really look at the arts as a valuable source of income. That's what a lot of kids these days look at when choosing majors, uh, choosing hobbies and interests, you know, it's more career-based, more management-based and development-based. Art is a way to express yourself. Um, It's obviously one of the most beautiful things out there. You know, it's a great field to go into, but if you look at it from a monetary standpoint, which is what a lot of people do these days, it's kind of a dying industry, you know? So I actually don't hear a lot of, you know, oh, art internship or art opportunities here. Um, so I'd say it's definitely difficult to be an artist and to kind of get into that field. But I hope, you know, people my age and or people Lyra's age are, are still getting into that field, you know.
0: There isn't a lot of difference between your age and Lyra's age when I compare it yeah, yeah. to yeah. my age. So it's, it's fun listening to you uh, talk that. But again, one of the things that you just mentioned now is it's also frowned upon in the peer group, even when taking up arts as a hobby is that is that how much things have changed
2: so i'd say that you know taking it up as a hobby for you know if you like drawing if you like um making comic books for example um taking it up as a hobby is one thing and then like publicizing it you know like making it public and showing it at galleries and things like that starts to get to the point where people will be like oh is this person like going into art you know why wouldn't they go into computer science or data science and it's such a valuable source of income in the future you know it's i wouldn't say they'd say it's foolish you know because art's still very impressive um but i'd say the viewpoint generally is that oh what can this get you in the future you know um do you want to get your name out there or do you want to make money like that that's kind of how a lot of people look at it these days you know um so i'd say yes
0: what are your views lyra
1: so I've noticed the same thing as Ion. Um, with my peers, they, and with my peers that are interested in art, they typically take it up more, more as a hobby, but they wouldn't go as far to do an internship with it. Um, I do have a friend and she runs a small business where she sells creations of her art. But then when I asked her what major she wanted to go into or what she was interested in, she said computer science to for a career, but she would never pursue art as a career. So just seeing things like that Definitely with what Ion said, people are focusing more on where money would come from than rather what they're interested in.
0: That's an interesting conversation, right? Both of you have been talking about the monetary aspects of things. So one of the core reasons why Web3 was even created was to create a new form of decentralized currency that wasn't necessarily controlled by any centralized bodies. And it also today has added over a trillion dollars to the world economy in a fashion, in a way that never existed earlier, right? Like you never really had cryptocurrencies before 2009. And it's into 2011, 2012 when Web3 cryptocurrencies even started becoming mainstream. And since then, the world's economy is 96 trillion. And a trillion dollars is the market cap of uh, cryptocurrencies, over a trillion dollars. In fact, in its peak just about a year and a half ago, the total market cap of cryptocurrencies was three trillion, but now it's a trillion. So obviously you can see the volatility there as well. But as we get into that, I want to ask you, even before proceeding ahead, do you feel like the focus and you guys are still young, right? You do get an opportunity to focus on. Uh, enjoying life a little bit right and not having to worry about being the bread owner for your family uh, unfortunately i'm sure there are other peers of your age group who might not enjoy the same liberty as well right because family circumstances or where they are coming from or they might not even have a family, right? If their kids growing up in foster homes and stuff, they unfortunately do not have access to the same kind of uh, privileges that you might have access to, right? However, the focus of even people who might have access to wealth for their kids has been on how do you generate more wealth because of the inflation that we are combating, right? Like we have seen in COVID. The prices of everything at the grocery stores almost double, even though technically the inflation in papers is around 8%. But I'm pretty sure that when you go to get your favorite um, items from the grocery store, be it ice cream, candy, and or I don't know how many of you actually, if either of you go actual grocery shopping, that's why I'm talking about these items, but you've seen the prices change. And one of the big headliners in recent months have been the prices, the shortage and the pricing of eggs, which I never thought egg would be the star in a headline, but that's how things have changed. Do you feel, especially even at your age, right, being exposed to the pressures of being able to sustain to first of all get into a career that makes you enough money and then being able to sustain it do you personally feel that um, that is coming getting in the way of what choices you make in life right because you can see or you hear from people that you have to earn money And with that being at the forefront, you see choices being influenced because, as you said, right? Like, hey, you might not want to take up a career in arts because there isn't the scope of earning a lot of money in it. So, do you think uh, that if money wasn't at the forefront, your choices might have been different, or if there would have been anything that you would have done differently if it wasn't uh, related to you trying to? make more money in future i am
2: okay so well for starters um going back more to you know when i was in high school and stuff and my view on the world i actually did back then uh this was a long time ago but i used to play basketball and i actually used to act as well i was in uh, theater in pleasanton uh where i lived (laughs) uh and i'd say that my, my view on money didn't necessarily influence everything about you know what my focus shifted towards during my junior and senior year of high school it wasn't that oh i have to get into this field because i want to make this much money while i did see a lot of my peers doing that you know i still wanted to have a life i still wanted to get out there add a bunch of things to my skill set think about you know what exactly i enjoyed and for one thing basketball was there my freshman year and sophomore year of high school i played basketball intensely with aau and that was a lot of fun you know That itself, these extracurricular experiences can build on your personal skill set. You know, I realized I was very vocal. Um, I was very creative. I was able to help lead teams. You know, that's what you can get from sports. And then from theater, I learned more about my creativity and creativity and how I was able to express myself. So I wouldn't say that, you know, my view on, you know, income changed everything about me. All the extracurriculars that I did in the past help shape who I am, and I think that's something that, you know, a lot of high schoolers these days are, you know, kind of missing out on. Middle schoolers and high schoolers, they're they're missing out on those experiences. You know, um, taking up a hobby or or an extracurricular sport or you know doing something in the arts can still build on your skill set and help you make money in the future. Um, so I'd say that you know those experiences kind of shaped how I look at the world these days. But for people who and students who you know look at, oh, I'm gonna get into computer science or data science or or other fields like that, and just focus on that and building my skill set, you won't exactly have a holistic you know uh, skill set to show employers in the future. So each experience is valuable and each experience matters, whether that be in the arts, whether that be in sports, whether that be in uh, professionalism, in in uh, business, in computer science, in IT. Um, everything helps, you know? So I think people need to start viewing it a little bit more like that. itself.
0: Lyra, what are your views?
1: So for me going into my junior year of high school, which is known to be one of the hardest years of high school, I definitely do feel pressure to focus more on subjects that would make you more money in the future, like math and science. And in terms of extracurriculars, I participate in choir, which is singing and theater at school. And I will say throughout my high school career, I have noticed that I have been drifting a little more away from those classes because I just feel as if, you know, math and science classes, just based on what my peers say and what I hear, they just feel a little bit more valuable. But I wouldn't say that I've completely given up on, you know, different types of arts like singing, theater, etc.
0: Lyra um, and her school, they do put up an annual performance, which is very well received by the entire peer group. And the tickets sell out really quickly from what I hear. Uh, That being said, I would love to ask you guys, do you think we, if we were in a world where you could do what you enjoy, and as long as it didn't mean hurting others and uh, you would still have your basic uh, necessities taken care of or you would make enough to live a decent life but maybe you might not go around uh, driving a Rolls Royce right do you think that would actually change the way people do things in the world where you can work on what you like and as long as it's contributing to your own growth to the growth of the society not hurting anyone it is helping improve the societal impact around you what you're working on has an environmental impact and by societal impact it's impact on human life impact on how how we all are growing as a species any of those things do you think uh, the way people actually approach careers now that would be any different lyra
1: i definitely do think that i think more people would be focused on stuff they're passionate about like art for example um and more like different types of arts i also think that people would focus more on volunteering and nonprofits and stuff and i think our overall life would just increase and it would be better because i feel that people would focus more on contributing to the quality of life more it wasn't.
0: Versus just focusing on. Uh, and yes, people don't just focus on the money, but in order to get a good quality of life, you also need to earn more. And I believe for most of the focus, those two things go hand in hand, right? Ayan, what are your views?
2: I also agree. I do think that if people were to focus more on their hobbies and transition their hobbies to you know possible careers and things they could do with their lives in the future, the quality of their lives would drastically improve you know um if people were to look less at you know income and more at what they love to do and what they're passionate about it could have a very positive effect on you know not just you know themselves but the communities that they participate in you know like the art community could thrive so much more and that's what it used to do um obviously values change over time um but yeah i I do think that that's what would happen
0: All right. Well, I think we have had a great discussion on just discussing economics, right? How we perceive it, how things have changed in the past 10 years, I would say, right? Especially as you guys are growing into conscious adults, right? I feel like once, um, obviously as kids, as toddlers, you don't have a view on the world, Mm -hmm. right? But then as you start probably even growing As old as nine, ten years old, right, where you have a voice on the table, right, and you are asked for your opinion, and you are also intelligent enough, a little mature, to have a view on what's happening around you. That's when you really start growing into that stage of uh, conscious intelligence, as I would call it. Now, With that being said, I would love to ask you your views on the world of Web3, right? First of all, I would like to ask each one of you, what In your words right what do you think web 3 is and there is no right or wrong answer because what we're really trying to explore here is uh, we have two gen Zers in the studio right and obviously you haven't been exposed to the world of decentralization through your uh, lives but that being said i just want to understand how when you hear the term right what do you think about it and the lay down the good, bad and the ugly, because we also know that there are a lot of scams and frauds that you hear about. So um, starting with Lyra, I would love to ask when you hear about Web3, about cryptocurrencies, what have your views been and if they have changed over the summer while you were interning at a Web3 startup?
1: So before the summer, I didn't really know what Web3 was. And I've heard the term cryptocurrency before, but I didn't really fully understand what it meant. And I didn't know too much about Web3. It's not something that I've talked about with my peers or even just in general. It's not something that I brought up before. So with this internship, the first thing I did when I, you know, heard about it was I researched what Web3 was. Um, and when I and when I learned what Web3 was, I was able to I was able to really understand more about cryptocurrency, about all these different terms that I didn't know what they meant. I remember even when we we were first meeting on Zoom, um, you were talking about Web3 and the Web3 world, and you mentioned a few terms like decentralized finance and terms like that. And I remember me and Ion, we both didn't understand what those terms meant, and we were super confused. So now just looking back at that, I can definitely say that I've learned more and- yeah, Web three is just something that is so interesting, and I would love to continue to learn more about it. I am.
2: Well, when I think of Web three, the first thing I think about is user oriented and user friendly. Obviously, it's a decentralized network and stuff, and Web three focuses, I think, more on um, you know less sign on applications because I think one of the big issues with Web two and Web one was that uh, was the issue of privacy uh, within the user. And I think Web3 is, well, when I think of that, I think it's adapted more towards user-friendly and user-based. So it caters more to you rather than whatever website you're visiting or things like that. Obviously, I am, like, I just got introduced to Web3 this summer. Before, obviously, I just focused on AI. But after joining Orbis86 and um, going to the Future of Web3 event and attending it and talking to all the different people there, Learning more about blockchain, Web3, and cryptocurrency, it really opened my eyes into just how much, especially the Bay Area and Silicon Valley has been changing. Um, obviously, Silicon Valley has been very technologically advanced. You know, it's called Silicon Valley for a reason. But seeing, you know, just how industry professionals view it these days and just how innovative one person can be with Web3, Web3, or AI or anything like that um, really opened my eyes. It was a real eye opener for me. So it was a really insightful event overall. And I'd say that at least the summer was well spent and I was able to learn more and more. So yeah.
0: And that's good to you. Uh, that that makes definitely makes me happy, right? Mm-hmm. Considering I was, uh, we were the host of the event. So that definitely makes me hear when I hear it from your mouth that, hey, it was a good event, it was time well spent, makes me happy. That being said, Ayan, you dropped a few words here, both you and Lyra. You know, we spoke about decentralized finance and Ayan, I love how you brought on uh, privacy. Uh, normally when I'm talking to my friends, especially my friends who have kids, one of the things that Gen Alphas that I have noticed, and I don't know whether it is the same with Gen Zs or not, is uh, even today at my home, I haven't configured any voice devices like Alexa or Google Voice for the simple reason that I feel like They are always listening when you configure them to work. And I just feel like that's a big intrusion of privacy for me personally, because all of that data has to be sent to a central cloud for processing. And I don't know what their data storage policies are, how sanitized the data is, whether the data is um, de-identified in real time. So it doesn't necessarily tie back to me I don't know how my privacy is being compromised. I feel like I'm at the whims of Alexas or the alphabets of the world, Amazons and alphabets of the world to for them to say that they are not mishandling my data. So because of that, I don't have those devices configured. But for some of my friends' kids, Alexa is their best friend. And I would love to ask you, especially Mm -hmm. from that generation that's seeing this transition of the millennials, we saw a lot of advancement in how technology connects the world because the internet really grew in front of our eyes. And we went from worlds that were sort of a little disconnected virtually Mm -hmm right like today if i want to stay in touch with my friends in india i can do that every single day even on a video call but when i was a kid i remember even making an std call in india which was just within india but in a different city or in a different state it would be very expensive and people would keep them as short as possible when the mobile phones came in The concept of missed missed calls really started from there because incoming calls were charged and they were really expensive so people would just give a call on the mobile phone so that somebody could call you back from landline and that's how missed calls even really started now with things uh, changing progressing the way they are i would love to hear from you your thoughts on privacy What does data privacy mean to you? First of all, are both of you on social media? I think that's going to be an important thing. And when you're on social media, I would love to ask you if that thought of your privacy being compromised or uh, your privacy or your data not being private enough ever cross your mind. Lyra, maybe I'll start with you this time.
1: So yes, I am on social media and for Social media platforms like Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, the first thing they ask you when you sign up for their app is, oh, can you turn on microphone access and camera access? Especially Snapchat, they don't even let you use the app if you don't turn on your microphone and your camera. So when you think of it like that, with even just on your phone, which is something that most people have on them every single day, almost all the time. You know, I use my phone as an alarm, so it's by my bed when I'm sleeping. It's something that's just always with me. You definitely think about like hey is my privacy being violated? compromised or is it
0: am i completely safe yeah there used to be a very interesting study and you might have obviously heard about it where if you spoke over the phone especially after you gave the uh, microphone access to the apps and in fact uh, i don't know how much uh, you know about this particular aspect but both iphone and google have really started showing you what accesses is, a, is an app requesting, right? It never used to be that detailed. When you installed an app, you wouldn't really see a breakdown of every single uh, thing that the, cam, that the app is getting access to. And it was an interesting uh, era because what happened, what used to, well, it still happens. If you would talk over, over a phone call with your friend, let's say if I have WhatsApp and Facebook on my phone, and even over a regular call, not a WhatsApp call, just a regular call. If people would have conversations about, let's say, buying an Audi, the next thing they would do, they would see is on their Facebook timeline or Instagram timeline, they would start seeing ads on Audi. And there has been research around that. And obviously we know Meta as a company has been in the middle of a lot of lawsuits around privacy, etc. cetera. Um, so that's definitely an interesting thing, which is the reason why I said, right? Like, hey, If we really want to be private, I guess we have to completely disconnect from the Internet at all and not use any smart devices, not have any smart devices at home. And even then, you might not be fully secured because while you're out on the streets or you're at other places of businesses, they have cameras that is connected to the Internet. And you have street cameras, and you don't know what's being monitored. In uh, China, apparently, in the Uyghur provinces, right, which is where you might, you may or may not be aware, but that's also um, a sect in uh, in China a group of people called the Uyghurs and they aren't really treated very humanely and a lot of experiments are sort of conducted on them not the kind of Nazi experiments that you would think about but rather all of them have to register their irises right their irises have to be scanned and then all of them um, the the areas that they work in the camera feed is often run through AI to monitor biometric activity. So there are a lot of things like that that are happening. So uh, that's being done by the government, though. You you don't know what these organizations are taking from you. So Ayan, your views.
2: Well, for starters, obviously, that was an apt uh observation. With Snapchat, Instagram, I do have social medias. They ask you for a lot of information. Can we use the camera? Can we use the microphone? Things like that. But I never thought of, you know, Alexa. Actually, that was interesting. Um, And that made me think more about, I think millennials and Gen Alpha focus more on their privacy than Gen Z, simply because Gen Z is so much more technologically adept and we've used technology like so much more for general entertainment. Whereas, you know, Gen Alpha and Millennials look at it more of, okay, you know, it's there, it's a commodity in that sense, but you have to be careful with it. I think that's like a generational viewpoint that's the kind of a disconnect there um, between Gen Z and these other two generations. And honestly, I don't think that the U.S., government per se P- people distrust a lot of technology because they say oh the government's always listening the government's always watching but i do think it's more about the private organizations facebook had their big scandal you know where they were um users with data share and then the privacy would be stolen or their privacy would not be well it wouldn't be private um and i think that that really sparked kind of a mistrust in technology which is why i think Web3 itself is such a good tool just because it's decentralized and it's more based on privacy and it's more user friendly. You know, a lot of companies preach user friendly, but then, you know, when you get their app, it'll ask for a bunch of information. Can we sync contacts with the application? Can we use your phone, microphone, camera? Um, So I would say that me personally, I am not as skeptical like when I see all these alerts, if I was to download Snapchat for the first time and it says, we want to use your camera, your microphone, I would just say, allow, allow. Um, (laughs) But I think that it's definitely much better to be safe. So don't be like me, you know, (laughs) always check your privacy and things like that. And I actually do think that that's something I could start working on, you know, Um, focusing or noticing more of, oh, why does this app want to use this uh, particular part of my phone? So yeah.
0: Well, The reason why they collect a lot of data, obviously, is because they want to either use that data, sell it to others, right? Uh, And make money from it. When they say, you might have heard the saying, right? When something is free, you are the product, right? So nothing in life, unfortunately, is truly free. However, do you feel like in today's world? Facebook knows probably more about you than you do if you're on Facebook, right? You are browsing patterns, what you like, what you dislike. And based on that, it can actually create a good psychometric profile about you. But that being said, do you feel that people's data is obviously being used by these companies, not just to sell the data sets to others, but also for targeting them for ads. And as you know, for both the Google as well as Facebook, their biggest source of revenue comes from ads. Even though Google has other product lines like Google Cloud, etc., yet even for Google, their biggest revenue stream is ads and ads are based on personalization. Ads are targeted to get the most bang for the buck. However, when your data is being used and our data is being used, you never see a penny of the ad that somebody or the income that these companies are making based off of your data. And also, when you sign on to the apps, like you said, Lara, on Snapchat, you don't, you can't even sign on unless you give them access to the camera and the microphone. It's very hard for you to selectively revoke access to certain parts that you don't want to share and only give access to some data. For me personally, as well, if I am being shown the right ads, especially when I am uh, thinking about buying some, making a big purchase, right? Or going on a vacation, if I get ads around that I'm like okay this is cool because I am getting something that I'm interested in but I would never like to see an ad that is targeting me for my relationship status right like I'm married so I definitely wouldn't like it if I start seeing an ad especially as I turn 30 with which is advertising like divorce attorneys or something <laughs> <right>? <laughs> that's not something that I would really like my personal data to be used as That being said, the reason I'm asking about this, do you think um, it is, what are your thoughts, right? I know you might not have really um, thought about it as much, but that's why I want to ask you as a question. If your data is being farmed, just from a perspective of fairness, do you think that people, when they are the product, right? Yes, uh, in one way, they are able to use another product. So that is a that's an exchange. But do you think that's a fair exchange compared to what the companies make versus what the users are getting? Or do you think that the users on social media should also be able to get a piece of the pie if the platform is making billions of dollars, right? The users are contributing to the platform, not just in terms of their data sharing, but it's also their usage of the application. Do you feel it? It's fair the way it works today, where you get to use the application and we get to use your data. And then the companies make millions and billions of dollars, as we know, but the users don't really get to get any money from it. Or do you think it should it should change? And I just want your honest opinion. So if you feel like, oh, you know, it's fair, that's fine too. Stop with Lyra.
1: I think that I mean it's not a question I've thought about too much before, but I guess it's not really fair because they're trying to, they find out so much about your life and you, in return, you just get to see suggestions of things you might like or things that you might be interested in um, and your privacy is violated. And I mean, they know so much about you, like even apps now they're finding, they can even for school, They can even find out what school you go to, and they ask you, like, oh, do you want to put your school? and We'll put you in, like, a group with all your people in the school or stuff like that. So I guess now that I think about it, it's not really fair. But then also, like you said, people who use that more um, should get, like, people who use that more should they get revenue. When you think about it like that, like, influencers, they're on the app all the time, and they get paid for it. So is that there? Questions come up like that.
0: Right, and I would love to explore that further, but let me go to IAN first right and ask for Ian's view. Yeah.
2: So I think it's more based on I wouldn't say that it's fully unfair actually, because the the way that a user uses the app is based on you know their usage. Why should they be you know uh, compensated you know for data collection from the company if they're the ones voluntarily using the app? I'll give an example. I use TikTok a lot. I'll be honest. I'm on TikTok a lot, um, and the algorithm functions in a way that you know it shows um, what I want to see, and it doesn't show what I don't want to see. So it does take my data that way. But I really and you know TikTok makes money off of each user. You know, so they they're a user based uh, app and social media. But I don't think compensating um, the user would kind of make sense obviously influencers i think are a bit of a different thing just because they help out the app uh, as a whole like tiktok influencers they use their influence to kind of spread out and use and have outreach to the you know collective viewers and users of the app and tiktok partners with them and gives them a revenue stream but for general users who just want the app for their own entertainment i don't think that you know compensating them would make a lot of sense just because it's their you know they're voluntarily using the app so i think that's kind of my viewpoint on it
0: so <laughs> i want to present some um, stats to you right and i know lyra you brought up uh, influencers so let's talk about youtubers as we know youtube is a platform where i i would say it's where the original uh, creator economy perhaps started, right, where people realized, or YouTube started the YouTube monetization model, where if you were getting X amount of views on your video, you would get paid for that. So um, first of all, YouTube has changed their policy right now. Uh, just recently where earlier a channel had to have at least a thousand subscribers before they even started making any money. They weren't even eligible to sign up for the partner monetization program unless they had a thousand viewers. And I believe it was, uh, I, I can't remember, but there were. there's also a limit on the number of, uh, a lower limit, a floor on the number of uh, viewing hours people need to have um, on their videos. Now, obviously that a policy has changed because now you have shorter content as well, right? Like you have YouTube shots. So they have changed it to, I think, 3 million views or more of your shots in the past uh, uh, six months or something. And they have reduced the number of uh, subscribers from a thousand to a minimum of 500 on the channel. But that being said, in India, for example, and I'm looking at stats from Upgrad, um, in India, for every 10,000 views, on a video considering you're eligible for getting money from that making money from the views you tend to get about uh, 200 to 500 indian rupees which uh, comes to um four dollars to uh, under eight dollars or not even that much i guess you know seven dollars four to seven dollars three to seven dollars per ten thousand views and from what I am reading, generally on platforms like even Spotify and on YouTube, you don't actually get a lot of the revenue uh, being passed on to you. It could be anywhere between 10 to 20 percent to a maximum of 50 percent that is being made from the platform. Now, when you look at statistics that way, um, how do you feel about about that, right? And what I'm trying to get at is... Um, really a lot of these platforms. So let's just take YouTube as a case study, right? YouTube by itself, yes, even YouTube produces content now, just like Netflix does. But uh, YouTube started primarily as a way to share users' content with each other. So it's really the creators creating content and putting it up on YouTube. However, the creators don't get the majority of the buy. The platform provider takes the majority. Also, to just give you a perspective, I spoke to you about um, influencers, YouTubers in India, right, making between three to seven dollars for 10,000 views. But at the same time, if you were to pay for ads being run on their channels, right, and we have run a digital marketing agency, so we can see the back end. But in India, you end up paying anywhere between um, maybe two to Four or five dollars per thousand views, so you're paying about twenty to fifty dollars ten for ten thousand views. But the creator is making three to seven dollars. So when you look at numbers that way, does that change your opinion at all? Do you feel? And and the other thing is, it's all a black box, right? Because you never really see how much money is the platform making and how much of that is being passed on to you as a creator. I am.
2: Well, I think that, you know, my view on it would still be kind of it's like the amount of work that you put into your YouTube channel is reflected in how much money you would make in that sense. So if you look at big YouTubers, a lot of gaming YouTubers and things like that from the 2010s when YouTube was at its all time high, they overall didn't make as much from YouTube as they did from different partnerships and being paid by ad agencies to have ads at the beginning or end of their videos. So I'd say the, the model for payment, for paying and monetizing different creators' videos is a flawed model because they don't give you nearly enough. That's for sure. They might not give you as good of a rate based on that statistic that you said. You know, I mean, per 10,000 views, three to $7 just doesn't seem like it's worth the amount of work. But it's about building yourself from the ground up. You know, Big gaming YouTubers back in the 2010s, they would start off their channel. They'd be nobodies initially, but through properly marketing themselves and properly properly using other social medias, you know, getting into partnerships with different companies and brand and being ambassadors for or like being brand ambassadors is how they would make their money, most of their money. And YouTube would start coming in as a side commission for them. So I think it's also about if you want to put yourself in the public light. Um, And if you want to go through all these steps, jump through all these hoops to make your money, I think it's about what you put into your YouTube channel.
0: Right. So just creating content is generally for solopreneurs, right? For creators, just creating content is rarely enough. If they want to actually make a living out of it, they have to explore these alternate forms of partnerships as you spoke of. Um, The fun part is that these partners are also paying the platform, right? But then they also decide to go and uh, work with influencers directly so they can advertise their product. And gaming has been a big streaming revenue for a lot of folks to the point that Amazon literally bought over Twitch, right? Which is just a gaming gameplay streaming platform. um And do you think, Lyra, you know, it's the same question for you, but what I would also like to ask you do you think it's actually a lot of work because on one hand you're creating content for your channel but at the same time as a solopreneur you have to now look at everything else too right like you have to figure out how do you get into brand deals and it's not always easy to crack this unless you have uh, millions of views already or at least hundreds of thousands of views you might not have an incoming request directly asking to partner with you right so what are your thoughts
1: so like you said um with brand deals and stuff, I do think that being a YouTuber and doing something like that is a lot of work because there's a lot that goes into your job. And also the income is not super reliable because say you created a video and you don't know what the audience would like, if they would like the video, or if they wouldn't like it. So if the audience doesn't like the video, then, you know, your income for that week or for that month is less than, say, if you made something that people really loved. So it's not like a steady form of income. and it does still take a lot of work. I think YouTubers, they have to edit their videos, they have to film them, they have to, you know, purchase items that can be used for the videos. They have to do so much. So I do think that is a lot of work. And um, also going back to what you were saying with the pay for YouTubers in India, while it is, it's definitely not as much as it should be like for- Compared to US, if you think about it. Yeah. But it's still income. Yeah, for sure
0: right so you know in India obviously every dollar goes a long way and uh, we should also probably acknowledge the fact that these platforms did result in the creation of the creator economy a term that wasn't even present uh, 20 years back right Mm -hmm. well we are at the top of the hour so we need to wrap things up but the reason I even got into social media and you know we were just going down this rabbit hole uh, just to give some perspective on how web 3 could change things is we are now looking at the creation of like decentralized social media right obviously user adoption is going to be a big thing but when people move from centralized to decentralized social media a few things that would change is a users will have or users are supposed to have and obviously it will take time to build these systems but a much more granular control over their privacy So they should be able to not just see what data is being asked for, but also revoke access to the data anytime they see fit. And as long as the data stays on chain, they are able to see that, you know, if I'm giving my data to Meta or a decentralized platform in that case, where is that data going from there? Right. So if the data stays on chain, all of this is on chain because of the transparency, you can see where your data is traversing. And let's say my data is being used by political uh, campaigns. I might want to revoke access to that. Right. But I would be fine with my data being used um, by travel agencies, for example, right, to target me. On the other hand, when it comes to commissions, generally with a lot of the Web3 platforms, or Web2 platforms, as I said, the creators would make anywhere between 10% to 50%. With Web3, that changes completely, and creators make um, anywhere between 80 to 90%. And the thing is, again, because of the inherent privacy and decentralized aspect of Web3, folks are able to see and really check each transaction to make sure that that number is not a black box so you are able to see that okay there was a thousand dollars i had a thousand views and uh like ten dollars were paid for a thousand views and the platform is making a dollar and i am getting nine dollars so that's how some of these decentralized systems are being built up where now the user as you guys know are is really at the center of it all right it's not the conglomerates being built but rather the users on the platform they have more control over their privacy they get a share of the pie because the platforms look at the users as owners of the platform too because the users own the data they are sharing their data they should be rewarded for that they are creating content they should be rewarded for that more fairly so that's how uh, some of these things are changing. I know we just explored one aspect of it, but uh, we are already a couple of minutes uh, over time. So I would love to wrap up the show today. Thank you, Ayan, and thank you, Lara, for joining us on another episode of The Silicon Dreams. And to all our lovely listeners, keep listening, and we will see you next Monday at the same time with another episode of The Silicon Dreams. Until then, have a great life.